Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. 2022 was a record year, and we want to thank everyone who made it so special for us, from all of our participants, our donors, supporters. Currently, we're recruiting for our late spring half marathons and marathons. It's crazy because our early spring half marathons are full. We are also recruiting for many of our fall marathon teams from our New York City marathon team, our Chicago marathon team, Berlin, and many others. So make sure to check out our website to learn more. Also locally here in Connecticut coming up, our third annual Charity Golf Classic on June 5th back at Shorehaven Country Club. If you're a golfer, if you're a business and would love a sponsorship opportunity, we've got plenty of those. So feel free to check out our website to learn more on that. And also we've got our virtual events kicking off this March with our Purple Patties 5K. Again, check out our website for more details at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us wherever You are on social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. We're there. Please give us a follow. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us. I love having international guests because this is truly uh, so awesome when we get to bring people from all over the world to the podcast, to this community. But coming to us all the way from Glasgow, Scotland, Oliver Maddox, the co-founder and head of research of Fyth therapeutics, which is based here in the US, but Oliver is in Glasgow. Did I say that correctly? You did indeed. Fantastic effort. I nailed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. And thanks also for for all the work you do uh, at Project Purple. Um, You know, uh, thanks to you and your supporters. I've had a lot of support in my own research from from charity work and so it's it's hugely important well i've said this before on the podcast i've said it in person it's an honor for us uh to be able to support so many people in this fight um whether that's patients through our patient aid program and 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 also research. I was going to say more importantly, but I don't know what's more important sometimes of, you know, helping a family get through that journey, you know, to focus on their health and care because we're helping them out with a financial grant or to help, you know, research along. I mean, they're both equally important, Yeah. but so it is truly a blessing, Oliver. And I'm not like, I've said this on record many times, like I'm blessed to drive this bus. Um, We do our part and then we rely on the amazing researchers and scientists in this field to do what they do, which is is truly life-changing, right? Um, And so I'm excited to have you on here because anytime that we can pull, I mean, we say we're on the front lines, but we're not necessarily, like we are on the front lines with the patient but you guys are literally on the front lines in the lab, right? Like you are that infantry that is, you know, knee deep in those trenches trying to fight this. And and I, I use a lot of analogies when it comes to to war, because I, I feel this is a war on pancreatic cancer. Like mm-hmm. we're all playing this part, right? And, and yep. you know, and, and you guys are right in those trenches. So it's just so awesome that, you know, we can bring to the community the great things you guys are doing, the the efforts that you guys are doing, but then also which I get this because I'm in philanthropy, right? Is how important philanthropy is 
to the to the cause, right? To making sure, like we we see this all the time with traditional warfare. Like we saw this in in many of the the Desert Storm. You know, there there were complaints about you know these Humvees that we sent over to Iraq during Desert Storm that weren't prepared for the IEDs, as an example, right? And and you saw this massive drive of parents sending you know sheets of metal or money for metal to reinforce those humvees and and i kind of relate this to like this is what we need to know like what do we need to do as a community to support those researchers on the front line to do that so this is why i'm so excited to have you on here uh, but before we get there which is customary for all of our guests as we'd love to share with our audience a little bit about your background like how did you get to where you are today? And and you know, I as we said before the record, before I hit record, I should say is like, you know, this is your opportunity to share your background. I know I've I've seen your CV and and you've had an extensive background in research. Um, and this is your opportunity to share with our audience. And as I said, you can stay as high level as you want, you can, or you can get as deep in the weeds as you want. With that, the microphone is yours. Okay. Well, thank you, Dino. So uh, you mentioned the name and pronounced it perfectly, Fife Therapeutics. Uh, Fife uh, is a Welsh word, uh, and I'm from Wales originally. That's where I grew up. Uh, and so I, I realized pretty early on growing up, luckily for me, that, that I really enjoyed research and biology. Uh, and so, you know, one of the first things I, I did out of university was a degree in pharmacy. So uh, I learned about how drugs work and how diseases work as well. Um, not long after that, I went on to do a PhD in molecular biology at the University of Edinburgh uh, here in Scotland. Uh, and then for a period, uh, I came over to the fantastic city of Baltimore, um, where I was a Fulbright scholar uh, and uh, studied uh, after my PhD as a postdoc in Baltimore. Uh, after that, I returned to the UK in Glasgow, again in Scotland, and for the first time, started to work, you know, in earnest on cancer metabolism. So that's the study of how cancers uh, obtain and use nutrients. So just like us and our bodies, tumors need nutrients to grow. Uh, and I began studying that in about 2010. Uh, and so I've been working on that for, I guess, 13 years now. Uh, during that course, uh, I started my own lab uh, in the University of Glasgow, made some interesting discoveries about how important diet could be in, in the treatment of cancer. Uh, and then around about two years ago, I uh, was lucky enough to meet uh, other scientists who had made you know breakthrough discoveries in that field uh, and helped found the company. So, so that's a little bit about my background, but I'm happy to talk to you more about the company background as well. Yeah, before we get there, I, I always ask researchers this question and, and clinicians, I should say, versus researchers. Why cancer metabolism? What was it that, you know, what I, I'm always so I know my why, but why that? I mean, there, I, you know, we can think of cancer. I mean, there's so many areas to go into, right? And, and I guess I'll just put this out there. I, I don't know if this is true. But the more we know, the more complex it potentially gets, if that makes sense. Uh, I think, you know, complexity is a key issue when thinking about cancer in general, but also metabolism. And actually, you mentioned complexity. When I was first debating, you know, what project I should take on for my, for my second postdoc, 
I looked at the entire metabolic network, which is this a map, like a city map, if you like, that shows how all of the metabolites are interconnected, how they get converted one to another. And there's thousands of these metabolites and there's thousands of enzymes involved in converting them. And I thought, wow, this is incredibly complex. But, and that was a little scary initially, but actually what I realized was that when it comes to metabolism, we know the basics really well. And so we know because of, you know, a generation of biochemists that did all of the hard work, we know what metabolites are interconverted and and how metabolism works quite well for for mammalian metabolism. So, you know, uh, uh, humans and and other mammals. And so whereas the complexity struck me initially as kind of scary, it it then matured to the point where I thought, well, actually, we, we know the basics of this really well already. And genomics and genetics is now evolving to the point where we're starting to understand that really well. And so putting the two together becomes really powerful. And I think that that was part of the reason why it was appealing to me is that we had all of this existing information and that this field of metabolism was really re-emerging. It's been known for about 100 years now that, that tumors have a different type of metabolism compared to, to healthy tissues. But it's, I think, through the uh, increased knowledge of genetics uh, has helped us to start to work out how specific t- different tumors metabolize and acquire nutrients differently. And so it seemed to me like a, a big challenge, cancer metabolism, but also one where we had this large amount of background information that was ready for us uh, to start using. And then finally, I think we all know that that if if a tumor is going to grow, it needs nutrients. You know, that, that's a truism, right? There's no getting around that. And so it, it, it's very instinctive that if we can work out which nutrients are the most important and what nutrients a tumor needs more than the rest of the body needs, it, it, it's intuitive that we would be able to maybe intervene in some way and, and improve treatment. So what we know is powerful, right? And and I, I think what you just said is is super fascinating because as I guess I can speak from my perspective as a cancer advocate, right? Um, and what we do, we're always hearing about cure, early detection. But if we stop the cause at the root problem, and sometimes like there's so much, I wouldn't say noise, but there's so much going on, right? And it's easy to get distracted or it's easy to say like, hey, we need to do this. It's almost like, I'm trying to think off the fly here, like a good analogy, like, hey, someone is overweight, but you know they're eating fast food, they're drinking colas, they're drinking alcohol, and they live a primarily sedentary life. Well, if you eat right, Drink less sugar, sodas, alcohol, more water, and get active. Well, then you don't have these. You don't have obesity, uh-huh. and and we've seen that. And 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 I know that's maybe like a really crude example here, but if we think about cancer in that way, you know that like to your point, like the tumor needs nutrition to grow, 
And if we understand how tumors grow, like using that nutrition, if we find a way to stop the nutrition, then all else, like early detection, like we eliminate it, right? Like it's the the root of the problem in some aspects, I guess. And maybe that's really crude, like a crude explanation. I think it, it, what, what you said really speaks to the fact that we all instinctively know how important diet is for health. You know, I think that's unquestionable. And we've known again for a long time that that diet also plays a role in cancer development and can have a role in prevention. But I think the, the key part for us and, and, and what Fife is doing is also understanding once someone already has a cancer and, you know, that, that kind of window for prevention ha- has gone, that, that diet not only can play that maybe role in prevention, but actually can pl- really play this active role in treatment. And I think that, that's really uh, the crux of what, what we're looking at here. And I think you mentioned, you know, and, and, and I alluded to the fact that tumors need certain nutrients to grow, but crucially, we've really got a better understanding now that not only do they need nutrients to grow, but they need nutrients to fight off chemotherapy and radiotherapy and resist treatment. And so it's it's become really clear in the last 10 to 20 years that uh, you can improve potentially the conventional treatments that everyone takes, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, even emerging targeted therapies, you're, you're, the tumors try and adapt to and overcome those things and resist treatment by engaging metabolic pathways and by taking up certain nutrients. And so there's this potential role for diet in the active treatment that not only slows the nutrient supply and cuts off the nutrient supply for tumor growth, but makes the tumors more susceptible and more sensitive to those conventional treatments. And so our approach at Fife is is you know very much rooted in this combination of drug and diet. You know we're not here to say diet's an alternative to to conventional treatment at all. We're here to say that the right diets, which are meticulously researched and understood at that molecular level, in terms of how they interact with the tumor, how the genetics of the tumor contributes, but particularly how the tumor uses those nutrients to resist drugs that we can match those things up to get a diet that sensitizes and and increases the efficacy of the conventional therapeutics. I love it. I I, I just wrote something down, but I want to, we're going to go back to it. And this is a great segue. So how did you get into Fife? Because kind of a great lead point here in what you guys are doing. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So as I mentioned, around about 2010 was when I started working on cancer metabolism. I had joined the lab in Glasgow of Karen Vowsden. So Karen is a a world-leading cancer researcher like many of the other uh, Fife co-founders. And Karen had spent a lot of her career trying to understand a protein called P53. Now, you may be familiar that that is a gene that gets mutated quite often in cancer. And we decided that Cancer metabolism was re-emerging as a a hot area of research. And and P53 is this long-known important gene for cancer. So we crossed the two over and started looking at how P53 could impact uh, metabolism uh, and really just landed on these observations that certain nutrients, and in this particular case, certain amino acids, um, 
were very important for for some tumors and this led us to do a whole you know probably about seven or eight years of work following up these observations and they really led us to this idea that very specific nutrient changes so we're not talking about generalized things we're not talking about high fat low fat high carb low carb we're talking about very precise targeted changes to diet changes that that are very hard for individuals to do on their own which is why Fife actually makes and supplies meals to subjects um that these very precise changes can do the two things i mentioned slow tumor growth um and increase sensitivity to um other therapies and so we we realized this uh on work we did from about 2010 to 2017 we published you know two two papers in nature during that period describing this work and the 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 coming together of the company happened when a couple of other major research groups in the field also began to have these observations around the impact of diet and so in the US, uh, Lou Cantley's group. So Lou, you know, is a, a very well-known uh, scientist uh, who's looked at the PI3 kinase pathway. And he found that, that certain diets could make these PI3 kinase inhibitors dramatically more effective. And they published a paper in 2018 on that. And so that, that was a group including Lou, Sid Mukherjee, um, Ben Hopkins, and Marcus Gonsalves, who are all co-founders. And then the third group um, revolves around Greg Hannon and Scott Lowe and Simon Knott. Uh, and they made discoveries about other amino acids in the diet that, that, could, that could promote survival in breast cancer. And so suddenly we had three you know, very uh, well-known research groups all making this discovery around diet at about the same time. We luckily all knew each other from, you know, uh, through the scientific network and could see that that there was this obvious need to start doing translational work so not just work in our labs but to 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 do something that could get this to patients uh, and so we realized quite quickly the the only way to to bring that about was to start a company together and um, because this is quite an unconventional idea uh, and to be able to bring that forward quickly uh, and with us in control of it that's why we started Fife so Fife was brought together with all these folks that are in this space of, and I know I'm I'm doing maybe an injustice here, so please correct me. Like targeted personalized nutrition is what I wrote down that allows the tumor to slow and also enhance the current treatments that are going on with the particular cancer. Yeah, precision nutrition is how we characterize the approach. And the, the, the critical things for us are the R&D that we do is really extensive. And what we want to end up with is a dietary change that is specific for a certain tumor type. So, for example, um, what the type of diet we would develop for a subject with pancreatic cancer who is taking, say, the standard of care therapies, gemcitabine and abraxane, would be very specific and targeted. And then perhaps if we had an intervention for breast cancer with a PI3 kinase inhibitor, let's say, it would be a different diet because it would be matched to that tumor type and it would be matched 
to the standard of care agent or targeted agent that they're taking. And so we have to understand how does that particular tumor type, you know, pancreatic cancer, for example, how does its metabolism work? How does it respond to a given standard of care, like gemcitabine and abraxin, for example? And then what diet is it that, that will give that particular type of tumor on the background of that particular type of chemotherapy the best chance of improve improving the response to therapy? And so, you know, we have active trials exactly uh, in that kind of space. And so it, it's a very precise combination of things. Uh, and we we are also able to do um, tests on people's tumor tissue before they enter the trials to further ask, does that given tumor have the right metabolic gene expression to predict that it's going to respond to this diet? So again, it, it's really the opposite end of generic, open, broad dietary advice. It's really understanding for an individual tumor, how it works metabolically and targeting a very precise diet towards it. I'm just going to say the obvious, like, so this is genius, but it's also so simple. Like, it so, is. so how come this hasn't been done before though? It's, it's a great question. And I think clearly uh, we have known for a long time that metabolism is important in cancer. Mm -hmm. um, what we haven't necessarily known is how do we pick that apart at a very precise level so that we give the right people the right diet and not just generic, let's give everyone a certain diet. And so I think that the field has really evolved in the last 10 to 20 years, hand in hand with the genomics revolution that has given us that much better understanding of the different mutations and genetic changes that happen in people's tumors. So that instead of having to recommend diet very broadly that works for some people and doesn't work for others, and then everyone goes, well, the data is unclear. We don't know what to do with this. We have evolved our understanding now to the point where we can much better predict uh, who will respond or not. Uh, and the other thing is that you know, clinical trials are, are not easy. They take a long time. They're expensive. Uh, and that I think there's probably been a reluctance to conduct true robust clinical trials with dietary interventions. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're taking a brave step in that direction uh, and really working hard to do those robust trials uh, and, and uh, properly answer the question. So I think, you know, there, there have been a number of, of, of attempts to, to bring this kind of thing through. You know, um, we're certainly not the, the, the first people to say that the, the diet's important in cancer, but I think hopefully the, the degree of rigor and R&D and, and detail of trials that we're bringing to it, it, based on the evolution in our understanding over the last few years. Yeah, there, you know, maybe it's the right time and place. You know, I think there's so much focus on our food, right? And, and, you know, clearly kudos to everyone, you know, that understands like, you know, obesity is a problem, right? And I, there's been the data, right? And, you know, common sense would say, and, and I'm not trying to shame anyone here, but, you know, if you eat fast food, drink a lot of soda, drink a lot of alcohol, not good, <laughs> not good for anyone. And I've seen statistical data, you know, just here in the United States, what we have like 50 million people 
I think it's like 20 million diabetics, type one, type two, most of type two. But that's up from like 2 million, like 10 years ago, but pre-diabetics, like half of the US population, you know? So like 150 million are pre-diabetic or diabetic. So what what's going, what's the common denominator here? And it's like, what are we eating here, folks, right? And again, I'm not trying to shame anyone, but it's just like smoking, like everyone back in the 60s and the 50s, like, yeah, smoking was fine. It was cool. Everyone's do it. Well, now we know like the more you smoke, you're going to develop cancer. It's a given, right? And now yeah. with alcohol, right? Yeah. yeah. Alcohol. The more you drink, you're going to develop serious issues. Like, you know, and so now it's almost like, I feel like where we are, at least here in the US, and I do have a question for you here in a second about, you know, other parts of the world, but I think here in the US, there's more consciousness about the types of food and the kinds of food that we are ingesting and how that impacts our health and wellness. And so yeah. maybe this is the right time for something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's very hard for people. You know, we, we as humans respond to our environment. Uh, and if our environment is filled with a certain type of food, then on average, it's it's easier to, to end up eating that. You know, it Correct. takes... And, and it can be very difficult. Uh, and and I, I truly believe that, that you know, that that's ultimately why a lot of people end up eating foods that they themselves might think is not great just because it's in the environment. We we've all got to deal with that for sure. Um, But I think to your point about why we're in the right place now for this to happen, I think other things like the evolution in delivery of food that we've seen just in the last, you know, five to 10 years also helps us. And so what we're doing uh, at Fife is is not just re- recommending diets that people should take. We make the food, we package it up, we send it fresh twice a week to patients in our trials, so they do not have to cook for themselves. It comes direct to them. You know, we have support for our, our patients through dietitians who they can speak to through our app. And so we try and make that environment, you know, change that environment by supplying things directly to people. And I think that's one of the reasons, again, why it's the right time is that that the ability to deliver and make and deliver these things to people's door now exists. And, and that maybe didn't not so long ago. True, true. So let's talk about, and, and I wanted to, so this is happening here in the US. Is it happening all over the world or just here in the US? Just in the U.S. at the moment, um, you know, the, the company is U.S. based. Uh, our trials are in the U.S. We do some R&D in the U.K., but but uh, all of the, the trials right now are in the U.S., but we would very much love to, you know, be a, a, be able to supply worldwide, you know, once, once we get good data in trials. So before we get to my next question, I've got to ask the obvious. People travel, like I was in Italy not too long ago. I have... Lactose, I'm lactose intolerant here in the United States. I go to Italy, cheese seven days a week, gelato seven days a week, no problems. I come back home here, I ingest that kind of uh, dairy and I am sick to my stomach. Have you seen, and I'm putting you on the spot, this is my first tough question here. I'm sure you guys have probably thought about this because clearly different countries, there's different regulations, different types of processing. It's not the same type of food, same type of quality. Sometimes it's higher, lower, different stuff. 
have you seen any data to point to that? And also, I guess second part of that is like, how do you manage that then? That I mean, I guess you're doing the testing, so the testing is the testing is going to tell you what the what the how the tumor is going to respond with a certain food. But then I guess you're just going to have to figure out what foods available in that country. I guess then. Yeah, I, I think you've got it right. You know, even just uh, developing our diets in the U.S., we already have to think about the different food types that people like to eat. You know, the, there is not one type of food. There's, you know, there's Italian food, there's Mexican food, there's, you know, uh, more kind of traditional meat and two veg type of food. And you've got to cover the basis. And so even just within the U.S., you know, we we try to have a reasonably diverse menu you know that, that that covers different people's preferences and we do allow people to choose from a, a variety of options of food what what they wish to have um but yeah you're quite right as we go beyond the us i'm sure we will have to you know take careful time to to look at the different food options and raw ingredients available and that's what all of our diets start with is a very careful um analysis of what are the component parts of all of the different foods that go in. And, and so we do that now for, for what we create in the US and we would have to you know keep doing that, of course, in other countries, et cetera. But yeah, it's a very good point. And you know, I think it's one you know we, we kind of look forward to and embrace, to be honest. I love it. So let's talk about what's happening now. So you've got this up and running here in the United States. Where are you in terms of uh, clinical? So this is a clinical trial? Yeah. So as a company, we have a number of clinical trials open and enrolling right now. Um, I know for your audience, the, the pancreatic cancer trial will be the most relevant. So we, we currently have a trial open where people receive their normal standard of care, chemotherapy, gemcitabine and abraxin. This is for newly diagnosed uh, advanced or metastatic pancreatic cancer. Uh, and the subjects will receive the normal gemcitabine and abraxin, but then we will also supply to them uh, a diet, which has a certain uh, nutrient composition um, that, that they will be required to take during that. So they will get their normal standard of care plus the diet access to our dietitians. So that uh, is open, currently enrolling. You know, where it sites like uh, Cedar Sinai in LA, where uh, Dr. Andrew Hendifar is our lead PI. But then, you know, right across the US, places like Wisconsin, Louisiana, Florida, New Jersey, you know, we have sites right across the US, uh, sites in Texas. So we, we're really conscious that we want to make this accessible and, and have a, a diverse representative patient population within our trials. We also have the ability to allow people into this trial who are not close to one of these traditional sites. So we have also a what's called a distributed trial model. The, the title isn't really important, but what it means is that anyone anywhere in the US, if they are interested in and eligible for one of these trials, can join the trial from wherever they are. And we can set it up so that, that they will be able to be a member of this clinical trial, even if they are not near one of those sites. And so our website holds the full details. So that's phytherapeutics.com and holds the details of our different trials and sites, but also you can get in touch with the company directly through the website uh, and inquire about um, the proximity to, to the sites, but also the ability to do 
join the trial with without being in one of these sites. I love it. So I, I want to jump in here. So it's a clinical trial, but I, I think, so how do I put this? I, I'm pausing here for a second because I want to make sure I, I, I say this correctly. I, I, I think there's a, there's part of this community, cancer community as a whole, there's people that understand what a clinical trial is. And then there's the vast majority that don't. And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. And I, I think part of it is a little bit, I don't think it's by design. I, I just think, you know, you assume what you assume, but I don't think everyone understands what a clinical trial mm -hmm. is, right? Because a lot of times I can say from my perspective, I get people that reach out, parent got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. They did standard line care. It's not really like it worked, but didn't work. And then they're like, well, hey, I got to find a clinical trial. Well, yep. you know, and, and then you have, a phase one, a phase two, a phase three. Then you also have, well, if you're in a clinical trial, you know that phase one is just about, you know, finding the standard dose of efficacy, right? Like it's not necessarily going to be like a game changer. It could maybe give you, a, you know, a, a little bit more time. You also may get a placebo, right? So there's, there's, I guess what I'm trying to explain here, and hopefully I'm doing it justice, is there's a lot of moving parts to clinical mm -hmm. trials, right? And there's, I think they're super complex, but they're also very simple. But from hearing what you're saying, is that everyone is going to get this diet? So it's a clinical trial in the aspect, whereas you know a traditional, like not a traditional, but a, another clinical trial, someone might not get that drug. Right. right, they may not get the full, the standard full of standard yeah. standard of care. They're going to get a placebo, and and they're just in that test. So with your clinical trial, though, but everyone's getting tested. They're getting that personalized nutrition as long as they fit the criteria of right. this of the guidelines of the trial. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And so up to this point, you know, and I think you make a good point. You know, not everyone knows what a clinical trial is. And so, so up to this point, we have this wealth of research that's been done in the lab. It's been done using human cell lines that, that we can grow in the lab. It's been done with mouse models of cancer. But we're at the point now where all of those things look very positive, but we don't yet have the data to prove that there's that efficacy change that we see in those models that we've done in lab. We don't have the data yet to show that it has those effects in people. And so the way you do that is you have to do a clinical trial. And that's where you set out your, your kind of what your patient population is going to be, how you're going to administer the, the things that you're going to give. And for us, because it's a dietary change that goes on top of other therapies, what we can say is we are happy to take people who are receiving the standard of care. So, you know, what, what their oncologists are generally um, able to give them as the best possible, you know, treatment uh, when they're diagnosed and add diet to that. And so at this stage, we, you know, we will have to do bigger trials. If we see good data, we will do bigger trials and, and, and they will change. But at this stage, we only need to you know, we don't need a placebo arm, uh, as as you've mentioned. So everyone who fits the criteria to be in the trial will get the diet, and they will get their standard of care first line treatment. But full disclosure here, the data you guys have shows that with these personalized 
nutrition and these dietary changes, you guys have seen amazing response, positive response to cancer, you know, to slowing that cancer development, enhancing the treatments. In preclinical models. Correct. That's correct. crucial to add, you know, that, that is in preclinical models. Yeah. Correct. So, yeah. And so, th- but this is where we're getting the evidence, right? We're getting this out. This so, is it. This is yeah. the process of getting that next step of evidence that allows us to, you know, develop this more fully for for patients. All right. I'm going to ask them the, the, probably the question that's everyone is probably thinking, but doesn't want to say, why would someone say no to this? What are the risks of doing this trial? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, foods it can be quite a personal thing. Not everyone will want to change their diet necessarily. So, you know, and, and also some people are super picky eaters, right? And they will want to eat the things that they want to eat. Uh, and so just like any therapeutic, be it uh, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, n- not everyone ends up being eligible or, or willing or wanting to do it. And, you know, the, the diet is is no different. You know, we, we don't assume that every single person on the planet will will want to go down that route. You know, they might want to eat their own things. Um, you know, we, we don't yet know exactly how things interact with chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and standard of care. We we have, you know, very good um, background data that we've already done over short periods in subjects with pancreatic cancer. So we have had a number of pancreatic cancer subjects take the diet, use it, get used to it. Uh, and generally, you know, people do pretty well. Some people, you know, prefer maybe do it for a few weeks, but then stop. And so, you know, it's it's clear that diet is a personal thing and, and that not everyone can uh, transition their diet to something quite different. But we definitely see that, that it should be potentially a lot less of a, of a burden, for example, than things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy, which we know are pretty toxic. And so... Yeah, we're, we're, we're learning right now how, how best to deliver it. Uh, and we're learning, you know, how some people, you know, like have certain preferences about how they would have the diet or eat certain things. And then other people are different. But yeah, I think we're, we're, we're going to learn exactly how applicable it is to, to a broader population. That's part of why we're doing the trial. When did the trial start? So um, I think our pancreatic cancer trial has probably been open for probably around about six months, maybe a oh, little wow. longer, depending on sites. So some sites have come online more recently. Yeah. Other sites have probably been open uh, in the region of about six months. Well, I, I'm just going to – we deal with pancreatic cancer patients day in, day out. And if I said to my patient population, the patients that I know well, the folks that I've become really good friends with, the families that I know – and I look back at my own personal experience with my dad. If someone came along and said, hey, you're going to do standard of care, which is tough. It's not a, not a walk in the park, but we're just going to change your diet a bit. And you just got to eat this stuff. Like I'm just, when hearing you say that, you know, I just remember my mom when my dad was battling, like, cause he needed calorie intake would like stuff these insure. I mm-hmm. guess I'm giving a plug for insure here. These insure shakes, 
you know, making sure he drank like three a day, you know, just to, and so I, I guess my point here, Oliver, is I think, you know, I, I'm not speaking for the whole community, but from what I know, man, it, it, I, I think people would, should be jumping all over this, you know, cause this is such a, a, a subtle change. Like we say subtle, yes, nutrition is a challenge for anyone, right? Um, especially battling cancer because your appetite changes, your taste buds change. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. you know, some of those dishes that you mentioned to the normal audience may sound fantastic, right? Yeah. But to a cancer patient who no longer has his taste buds, everything tastes like cardboard, right? So it yeah. is a bit of a challenge. So I don't want to, you know, um, you know, disrespect anyone and say like, this is easy, but I, you know, looking at this from a big picture, A, you're not getting placebo. B, it's it's not a drug that potentially, like I, I, I remember we had a survivor on and she was doing this, this clinical trial and it was causing her to have, and it was a drug and she assumed she wasn't getting the placebo. It was causing her to have like violent shaking attacks. And she eventually had to come off of the trial because after two weeks, she, she just, her body was having these like tremors. She was having these violent tremors. Mm -hmm. So again, diet, like we're this, the, 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 I would imagine side effects. I didn't ask, but let's not be assumptive here. What are the, what, what are the risks? Yeah, I think there are some obvious ones whenever you change your diet. You know, anyone changing their diet can experience gastrointestinal changes. Uh, and, you know, the, it, it's fair to assume for some people that that could be an issue. But, of course, we there are ways to to help manage that and ad adapt to that. So, so that's one we look out for. Again, you know, we try and provide a lot of support through our dietitians to to get around those things. And there are also, you know, uh, other treatments that you can give to help manage those things. You know, beyond that, one of the questions we've got to ask ourselves is how does taking the diet influence any side effects you might be getting from your chemotherapy? Uh, and so, you know, part of our trials is to ask that question and say, does the diet improve, make worse, have no change on the side effects that, that you get through your chemotherapy. Uh, and so that's an important question. You know, that that's part of the reason, that's one of the primary reasons for doing the trial at this point is to actually say, you know, is, is it safe? Does it, you know, make anything worse? Uh, we assume not, but we need to check that and answer that question. So in fact, that is, you know, one of the primary goals of the trial. But going back to, to what you said earlier, you know, I think we hear this really consistently that what from oncologists, I have to say, one of the first questions that that patients ask them, uh, you know, uh, when they've been diagnosed with cancer is, what can I do? Um, what can I change? What can I be active in? And currently, there's really not a lot, you know, cancer treatment is done to you to, to some extent, uh, and there is less that you can do yourself. So we hope that what we're doing will allow people to be more active uh, in their treatment, to be to be engaged, uh, and you know work at it. I, I think it, it like anything, it also require, requires working at um, the, the the good news. You know, for the for the trial in, that we have in pancreatic cancer, it's not it's not the case that people have to be on twenty four seven three six five. So we can have periods on and off the diet. So that I think that helps people. They can go back to their normal diets. Um, and, you know, we, we have, I mentioned pancreatic cancer a lot, but we also have trials for a similar approach in colorectal cancer. 
again, a range of sites across the US. And we also have um, trials with a, with a different drug diet combination for ovarian, endometrial, uh, and colorectal cancer as well. So, so there's really a range of trials uh, that, that are available. So fascinating. I, I mean, I'm always fascinated about diet, and I, I think this is just – I love talking about this because this is, to your point, like you said, there's – you know, when you get cancer, there's there's really not much that you can change, but this is something that we can change. And the more we understand this stuff, knowledge is power, right? And, and you know, there's a lot of desperate people in this space, and I don't mean, again, any disrespect to that, but like – that just nothing has worked, right? So if you can make some changes, get you know personalized nutrition, and that helps you, man, that's a game changer. So I I, I love it all. I uh, got a couple questions here for you left, uh, and these are the hard ones. Uh, we save them for the end here, and then we're gonna share where our audience and people listening can connect and learn more about what they're what you guys are doing the great stuff in the pc space and then all cancers as a whole i just think this is just awesome what's the goal of fife like the business question here five years where do you guys see yourself in five years and maybe beyond that if you have like a long term yeah i'll I'll go straight beyond five years um what we want to bring about is that precision nutrition is this fourth pillar of cancer care. So alongside the conventional ways that cancer is currently treated, which is radiation, surgery, and then therapeutics, that the diet stands in that group that you know is widely accessible to multiple patients with multiple tumor types and stands alongside those other interventions and can be paired with chemotherapy, radiotherapy. You know, and so it becomes this real pillar and standard part of a, a broad set of cancer treatments. So that that is the goal. I love it. Have you guys ever ventured into early detection or high risk populations with this? Because so, and the reason I bring this up now, my wheels are spinning here in the head. Like, if you know what we know that. From a metabolic standpoint, these nutrients slow the tumor growth, enhance the treatments. But again, if we go back even further, like people with a BRCA mutation or Lynch syndrome with with certain cancers, if they eat a particular way, then the cancer never mutates, potentially. Uh, You make a a great point. And I think one of the difficulties with that prevention part is who does it? Do you try and make it happen for everyone? That's really different. But I think you hit the nail on the head with something like Lynch syndrome or BRCA mutations, where you have a defined group of people who you know are at higher risk. I think there's totally the possibility to to then intervene at that point uh, and you know change diet, intervene, and, and make later tumor development less likely or less severe. Um, I think we're not there yet, but you know, I think if we can establish this evidence base in the acute treatment part, then I think we have the ability then to to to, to broaden it out. Um, also, I would say on on the detection part, you know, I think you're also in in the right area because these metabolic changes that happen with tumors can potentially be detected in in the blood, and you know, 
as an academic, I have separate research that, that and, and and a lot of other people have have done research in this. Um, you know, around asking this question: Can you detect those metabolic changes early to to help establish the presence of a tumor? And I think in pancreatic cancer, I think that is a possibility in the long term. You know, I think there's still a lot of work to be done, but that that is is a realistic possibility as well. I love it. Like I I think we're like a car, right? If you have a sports car, you put ninety three in. And it runs perfect, right? Regardless of Porsche, BMW, Mercedes, you probably go 95 octane if you can find it, right? And you put 87 in and it starts to knock, right? You start to have issues. And it's just our bodies are engines, right? What we what we put into our bodies, and there's, there's probably thousands and hundreds of thousands of studies that back this up. And I know we've talked about this a lot here today. But I, I think this genetic piece, you know, this, you know, knowing what we know, and then also if we know that certain, you know, again, getting really personalized to the tumor and to the patient is this mat like where we've seen this massive evolution in, you know, knowing high risk, knowing personalized, like what the gene and how the tumors, genes and tumor reacts. Is just so powerful. So it's just so cool for me as a non-academic person to hear this from the academic side that you know we're leaning towards those things and we're doing all these things because these are the things I preach to the community. Like the longer that people stay in the fight, there's a lot happening and a lot can happen very quick. So for the audience listening at home, again, I'm just excited to bring the opportunity to our community to hear this great stuff that you guys are doing at Fife. Um, second to last question here. Someone listening has a family member, family member battling, or maybe themselves. They're doing standard line of care. What should be the next step? What should they know? What should they do? Let's walk through that a bit. Yeah, I think you know, working out if someone could be eligible for one of our clinical trials. Um, that is best done through our website. You can see the trials that we have on our website. Um, and so, just to spell the name of the company properly, so people can find that website. It's F-A-E-T-H, Fyth, therapeutics.com. And on the website, you will see our list of trials, our list of sites. But as I mentioned, people don't necessarily have to be near one of those sites to enroll. They can also fill in forms on the website and contact the company directly. Uh, and re, you know that will help them work out uh, if if they're eligible for one of those trials. So that that's what I suggest uh, people do. We're also on uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, those kind of platforms as well. Awesome. Awesome. I got one more question for you. This is a loaded one, always the hardest. Given your background, which I know, you know, heavy scientific, but, you know, maybe even now going in with, with what you guys are doing at Fife. What's your definition of the word pancreatic cancer? How do you define it in your experience? Yeah, good question. So I think pancreatic cancer is different, right? I think that's the word I would use. When you look at it biologically uh, and through the lens of metabolism as well, it tends to be quite a different tumor compared to a lot of others. Um, and it's difficult to treat. 
right? We, we know that very well. So I think from the research side, it, it is seen as this, you know, very interesting tumor type, one that, you know, really deserves the attention it gets from the research side of things. Uh, and also we're very aware how how tough it is to treat, how tough it is on people that experience it, and, and how that that it is detected late quite often, right? So it has a number of characteristics about it that that you know just require us as a research community and i i'm happy to say many people are very engaged and you know up for this challenge that it's a very challenging tumor type but you know one that we're enthusiastic to tackle as best we can i love it well i i love the answer and i love that we have you in this field in the fight right to go back to that war analogy you know you guys are down in the trenches but you've got some pretty good uh artillery there that you guys are using um and some state of the art artillery as well with this this great idea so oliver thank you for all you're doing in the lab thank you for all you're doing with fife and uh appreciate everything and and appreciate taking the time to be a guest on the project purple podcast Thank you so much, Dino. It's been a huge pleasure. And again, thank you and um, Project Purple for all the work you do too. Thank you. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on YouTube. Share our videos. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Till next time, please be safe. <laughs>